going to read the scripture this morning, Romans 12 and Romans 13. We're going to jump around a little bit and I'll try to tell you when I'm switching gears, but hopefully we'll see how it goes. Starting in Romans 12 verses 1 through 4. Page 1205 if you're looking at the red Bibles. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Dropping down to verse 9, please. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful. In zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Now we're going to chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And the first verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to those whom, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul is asking us, as he has throughout the book of Romans, to remember the first 11 chapters and then to see the natural extension. And this is what uh, Christian writers and speakers and over conversation have been 
um, opining on, discussing, realizing that if the world is as in trouble as Romans 1 describes, that people are by nature idolatrous, more interested in using one another than loving one another, and are terrible at friendship. I'm giving kind of a broad brush, but increase or um, decreasing in gradation. Summary of Romans chapter 1. If the world is actually that big of a mess, that broken by sin, and then God pursues in love anyway, and we're justified by faith, chapters 1 through 4, then we receive the Holy Spirit and walk in the newness of life, is the phrase that Paul uses in chapter 6. And this is the God of the Old Testament and the covenants and the promise who never forgets his people, Romans 9 through 11. Then what do we do? How then should we live? So we go, to have, we go from having almost no commands in Romans 1 through 11 as Paul explains justification by faith, life in the Spirit, and that God is trustworthy. Then we have what seems like about a hundred commands. As I'm reading it this morning and this week and the last couple of weeks and having now heard it read a few times this morning. It's all you, Liam. iPad's not working. So Paul's expecting us to hear and to remember and to believe and to ever increasingly trust that the gospel indeed changes everything. What does it mean to present our bodies as a living sacrifice? What does it mean to be transformed by the renewal of our mind? It means to be trusting our intellect and our emotions, our very body and soul, the things God has asked us to steward to him. And Paul does so more indirectly here than in other passages of scripture But he's offering that there are but two ways to do this life. You can offer yourself to the mercies of the world, which are not merciful and not life-giving and not light-producing. Or you can offer yourself to the mercies of God, that he might renew you from the inside. When you pray, does it engage your mind and your emotions? When I was a kid, we were taught to pray for uh, all of our relatives by name, which I think is a lot better than no prayer. But now what I'm hoping to grow in is prayer that engages my mind. When I am able to pray for you, our staff and my own family and our elders, I want to pray boldly God's will for them. I want to use real verbs. I want my emotions And my head engaged. And this is one way that I am attempting to present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a way that I'm attempting to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of my mind. When you read the scriptures or study them, meditate on them, are your emotions engaged? Sometimes we separate, and Paul makes no separation between all of the parts of you and the fact that we present all of our parts to God and ask Him to renew and mature them. There's an assumption here that you're growing up in love, that you're maturing. And that assumption is supposed to encourage you. If you're a follower of Christ, 
Paul is indirectly encouraging you, as he's directly encouraging you to live as becomes a follower of Christ, he's assuming that you're growing up, that you're maturing in love. Do you know ways that you're maturing? For me, whenever I think of a way that I may or may not be maturing in love, I often immediately think of a way that I'm not. And I don't know where that darkness comes from. The world, my own flesh, Romans 7, the evil one. I want us to notice Paul's full expectation that if you're a follower of Christ, if you've been justified by faith, then these things are happening in you. Your, your, your soul is becoming more stable to utilize some of the other metaphors, Psalm 1 or Galatians 5, other times that the scripture talks about this. Paul's expecting that you're doing this, and so he expects it to be easy to be encouraged to continue to present your bodies as a sacrifice, to not be conformed, but be transformed, which is entrusting our mind and our body and how we do life and our soul and the things we've been asked to steward to God. And then he talks about how essential you are. And first he's going to talk about the gathering of saints, and then he's going to really talk about your neighborhood, and then he's going to talk about any human that you interact with throughout Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's a lot of words in a row. And Paul's beginning with humility, but he's fully saying and expecting that every participating member of a church participate and find their place. Now, this language may not be immediately accessible to some of you. I'm going to read the rest of this section. To some of you it is. You know your Bibles well. I'll unpack it a little bit. But you're in this passage. What you're good at, what you know and don't know, what you're called to, will be represented in here. Though this is not an exhaustive or comprehensive list. Picking up in verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function... So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You have an essential role to the flourishing of this church. And it begins with humility. And humility is not thinking less of yourself. As in uh, less good or bad. It may be thinking of yourself less often. Tim Keller wrote a little book called the... um, Shoot, now I forgot the first two words. The Art of Self-Forgetfulness? That's not right. Freedom of self-forgetfulness. Thank you, Brian Bouchon. It's an expectation that there are things that you know. Humility is an expectation of things that you know that will benefit the body. And if someone else knows them, that's okay. Things that you're good at that will help us as a church evangelize, disciple, serve each other in the community. And if someone else does that, that's okay. There are things that you care about very much. And if someone else can take care of that, that's okay. Let me break these down a little bit in terms that that we use more often. Some of you are gifted in friendship. 
And by gifted in friendship, I mean you're willing and able to see clearly into another's life and to speak into it. Speaking truth is part of prophecy. Is prophecy more than that in terms of the whole Bible? Sure, but it isn't less than that. And most of us will have some role in this, but some are better than others. Probably the two most prophetically gifted people in my life's names are Ty and Phil. And boy, they just say it real directly. And I know they're for me, so I can take it. Some of you are gifted in friendship. Some of you are gifted at stacking chairs and putting them away in such a way that we don't break the little pieces of them. You know, if you push these chairs around the wrong way, they won't interconnect anymore. And some of you are good at lining them up. And you think that doesn't matter. But it does. Some of you are good at teaching children. And you think anybody can teach children. And they can't. It's actually harder to teach children than adults. The beginning of the pandemic, right after Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson and the NBA, that's how I remember it. I had this terrible idea. And it was to do story time with kids every day. Well, what's terrible about it was thinking that I should do it every day. And one of the things I learned after Hannah Lawton started teaching one of the days and my wife started teaching one of the days and Will Downey started teaching one of the days is some people are really good at teaching kids and some are not. Some of you are good at prayer and encouraging people in your prayer alongside them. Exhortation is certainly broader than praying with someone and encouraging them as you're praying with them, but it's not smaller than that. And not all of us are good at that. Some of you are good at writing checks. Paul mentions generosity. I know some of you are like, who writes checks anymore? It's all right. Some of us still write checks. When I have to write one, I have to go find the checkbook. But part of participating in the body in the life of the church is being generous towards it. Some of you are better at that than others. Some of you are great at making meals and delivering them and doing so in such a way that people can receive those easily. And none of us are good at all those things. And the church needs all of them. Paul's not making an exhaustive list. He's not ranking them. And this is not a comprehensive list. One of the ways that lists like this are sometimes misused, especially the list in Ephesians where he says apostles prophets, evangelists, servants, teachers, people will teach that some of those roles are better. Some of those people, and, and, and I know, like I get the mic, if anyone's watching us as a group, they might be led to think that my role is more important than a servant or an exhorter. It's not true. It doesn't mean that the gifts um, aren't different in terms of their known effect it doesn't mean that they don't look different it doesn't mean that we don't struggle ourselves with thinking less of our gifts you may think this is weird I sort of think if you like the Bible and you know how like words work it's easy to write a sermon and my wife has been on kind of a mini crusade to convince me that it's not that easy and not everybody can do it and however good I am at it I appreciate that Not because she's being kind to me, but because of what Paul says. You have essential gifts here. So, contribute. 
And he talks about the contribution, I think, in the church in verses 9 through 14, 9 through 13, excuse me. And then he's going to talk more broadly. It certainly includes the church, but this applies to your neighborhood and perhaps those that you'll be around the table with this Thursday. So the contribution here, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. None of us have all of the gifts in verses 3 through 8, and all of us need to grow in what's listed in verses 9 through 13, right? And all of us are being grown even now in those ways. Specific gifts that not all of us need to have, definitely don't have, and then general gifts that we all need to be grown in. I don't know if you're familiar with language of the indicatives and the imperatives. Pastors and theologians like it. That's why someone in the room with seminary degrees started chuckling. The promises and the commands of Scripture. The love of God first, and then the response to God that is inevitable when we become aware of His pursuing love. Well, Romans 1 through 11 is full of indicatives and remembrances of covenant and descriptions of God's pursuing love. And now we see how to respond in Romans 12. And Paul is really happy to give a whole bunch of vague commands about what flow out of justification by faith, life in the Spirit, and a reliance on the God of the covenant who never forgets His people, Romans 1-11. through 11. In light of that, we let love be genuine. We abhor what is evil. We hold fast to what is good. We love one another with brotherly affection. And this makes me wonder a question, and I don't actually have a good answer to this question for me personally yet. Usually when I come up with a question like this that I think is going to help us grapple with the text, I have a good answer for myself, and I don't yet. But if we're supposed to both do this, especially with the saints, verse 13, and also grow in it, verses 1 and 2 and 3, and then picking up on 9 through 13, how do you prepare for church? I was looking over my notes this morning. I don't write my sermon on Sunday morning, but I look back over it. Is this clear? Am I going to be able to say this with any clarity? And it was bothering me, thinking, I need to do more to prepare myself to actually act this way in church. And if you have little kids, I remember, I mean, I have little kids now, but (laughs) I know that simply getting out the door is is 99% of it for many of you. I do. Maybe that's on Thursday or on Friday or on Saturday. Maybe it's 30 seconds. But Paul's expecting us to show up with joy and a willingness to care for one another. And he expects us to be a good citizen. Romans 13, which I think is misused civically often in the ways that... um, The description of the gifts can be used religiously. And yet this is very, very true to the scope and the story of the scriptures. Christians are expected to attempt to bless the areas they find themselves in. And Paul is pretty pushy in this language. I would say more so with respect to civic responsibility than in other sections of his letters. 
In addition to verse 1 where he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Then he says, Therefore, everyone who resists, therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He's talking there about the government's ability to put us in prison, among other things, right? For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Paul is again not being comprehensive. He's not being exhaustive. But he's reminding us, and this is the story throughout the scriptures, that unless the government is telling us to disobey a command of God, we seek to be a good citizen of it. I kind of wish he mentioned littering. I think littering is a small way that we can be good citizens. Why doesn't he? Because he's not trying to be exhaustive or comprehensive. He's trying to remind us of something that God reminds his people throughout the scripture in some of their most challenging places. In 1 Peter 2.17, Peter writes, that's James, it's not going to work, there we go. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In verse 13 of the same chapter, Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Peter's saying the same thing that Paul's saying, that we seek to be good citizens as an overflow of God's love for us. When do we not? Because that's the philosophical question. Most years on um, Martin Luther King Day, I read letters from a Bur- letter from a Birmingham jail, and the reason is Martin Luther King Jr. is responding to a group of pastors who look a lot like me, using scriptures like this to encourage him not to not do his work, but to do it at a different pace. And he had a lot of time on his hands because he was in prison, and he knew the scriptures very well. And it's something I long to wrestle with, because there are times that every human institution will not even be close to just as God sees it. And yet, the story of Scripture more regularly tells us to be good citizens within it. And by the way, Paul's assuming that it's going to be troubling. That's why he writes about it. If he doesn't assume, or if he doesn't think, that we're ever going to have trouble submitting to the government of our locality, he wouldn't need to write this. So if you're frustrated, either by my presentation or whatever it is about government, Paul's right there with you, which is why he's still encouraging us. So he writes, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, talking both about the local government and about functioning with neighbors. And I think the most profound version of the same encouragement is found in the book of Jeremiah. If you know Jeremiah, you know that uh, the nation of Judah was exiled there 
something more horrific than most of us can imagine, both in how it was perpetrated and the fact that their religion had a specific place, so they were separated from it. Some of you might be able to relate to parts of that. Most of us cannot relate to that kind of marginalization. In chapter 29, before the verses that you've seen crocheted everywhere, God says this to the Israelites, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Paul is writing to Roman Christians, reminding them that the gospel changes everything. That's the therefore in chapter 12, connecting it to chapters 1 through 11. That they're essential to the flourishing of that local church. So he encourages them all sorts of vague but passionate ways to contribute to that local church and to be a good citizen because the day is here. At the end of chapter 13, Paul's being eschatological. He's talking about the end times. This is very similar to 1 Thessalonians. This is pretty similar to Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. This is very New Testament that Jesus has come. He has taken care of sin. He has restored our relationship with God. And until he comes back, those days are the end times. And we do not wait to act as though all this is true. We do not wait to act as though we have not been shown the light of life that is faith in him. We act as though a newness of life, Romans 6, is available to us. He reminds them of some of the Ten Commandments. Why? Why would he say, Oh, no one to anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Because if we receive justification by faith, and then the Holy Spirit, and if God is trustworthy, Romans 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 through 11, then we see in his commands, how do we love? The law is freed into being a good guide to us, not an oppressive system that we can never meet. Instead, Christ frees us into receiving it as a good guide. And then he uses this eschatological language, verses 11 through 14, and ends it with, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The flesh, you remember from Romans 7, are the parts of you that are not yet fully conformed to the image of his Son. You've been given a new heart, so the core of you, if you're a follower of Christ, is good, and yet you still struggle. Romans 7 might be the best explanation of what it's like to be a human that I've ever seen. Paul is referring to it again here and then encouraging us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to continue to trust our minds to him, trust our actions to the way he calls us to act in light of his gospel, to entrust our emotions and desires to him, that they might be ever more conformed 
His way. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I am so thankful for your words mediated by the Holy Spirit to Paul that guide us into lives of life. Most here this morning trust you. Would you help them to entrust you more deeply? Some are wondering if your words and your gospel are true. Would you meet them in their questions, Lord, either in prayer or through friendship? And all that you encourage your church to be and to do, we ask that you would help us to do within our limits, but never lacking in zeal. Amen.